Good morning. Hebrews 4, 14 and 6 to 12. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, <clears throat> but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject, subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. <clears throat> In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that led to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. 
to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that the, what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we come now to feed on your word and we ask that we would feed deeply. Uh, whatever's happened to us this week, we pray that through your spirit-inspired word, you'd reach deep into our, the recesses of our souls and feed us where we need it. And thank you that we can hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, welcome, welcome everyone. <laughs> um, we all know the slogans, don't we? We've grown up with them. Eat well, avoid junk food, have a balanced diet. We've all heard the slogans of good nourishment. We know that kids need good nourishment to properly develop. We know that adults need good nourishment to maintain our health. According to the Global Nutrition Report, Australians, on average, aren't eating enough fruit, veggies, legumes, nuts, or grains. As a nation, good news, we are eating the right amount of fish, uh, but we eat also more than twice as much dairy and red meat than we need to. What about junk food? No surprise, Marty. Four out of five of us have too much junk food, with chocolate being something of a national obsession. Did you know that on average, each Australian consumes the volume of 20 small chocolate Easter eggs each day, adding up to a whopping 32 kilograms of chocolate per year per, per person. So despite us having access to all the good food we need, most of us still eat too much food that's bad for us and not enough food that's good for us. Though our fishing tank is right on target, so that's good. Right, but at least we're not malnourished. Imagine what would happen if you only ever had milk and no solid food, right? What would happen? Narelle, my wife, saw firsthand what this does to someone. 10 years ago, she went to a CMS summer conference. Two months after that, she then, as a consequence, found herself on a plane to Southeast Asia with a small bunch of health professionals from the Trinity Network traveling there to help out with some orphans. At this orphanage, they found upstairs on the third floor, shut away from everyone else to see, 
The forgotten of the forgotten. It was a room of disabled children who were neglected. They were huddled together on the cement floor for warmth and they were severely malnourished. Why? Because they had only ever had milk from a bottle. No solids. Narelle sent back photos. I didn't know what rickets was. These kids had rickets, um, soft bones that are now deformed because of a lack of vitamin D, a result of malnourishment, ribs sticking out unnaturally. It was very distressing. Now, to physically grow, people need to move off milk and they need to progress onto solid food. But as Marty said, what is true for us physically is also true for us spiritually. The Global Spiritual Nutrition Report has found that most Australian Christians are spiritually malnourished. Most don't have or don't express a hunger to know God more deeply. Most Bible-believing Christians, if they are feeding, are feeding on junk, sound bits, three-second Facebook grabs, sermons on one verse only, almost never from the Old Testament. They very rarely open their Bibles themselves to read from it. Now, of course, let me just say, there is no global spiritual nutrition report, right? I just made that bit up. Um, but you were listening, right? Would I have been that far off, do you think? Think of yourself. Is your spiritual nourishment, your spiritual diet, is it healthy? Or would you say, honestly, that you are malnourished in your weekly spiritual intake? Maybe you're just content to coast on, on kind of the fading memory of last time you were at church, which may have been some time ago. Or if so, look, I'm glad you're here, I really am, because if that is the case for you, chances are you're spiritually malnourished and you need a good feed. Now, maybe you'll say, but, you know, I'm not an academic person. I have a simple faith to which I would say, don't confuse simple with simplistic. A mature faith isn't simplistic. It's simple because someone who's learned to trust God deeply will trust God in any situation. Simple. But it's not simplistic. A simple faith is a deep faith. Faith which comes usually from years spent drawing deeply from God's word and countering the, the doubts and you know, growing solid in your convictions. Still waters run deep. The truth is that we need better nourishment than living off spiritual milk or junk food. Now, let's, I want to give a bird's eye view of the, the big picture of today's passage, because it's a big one, right? It will help us see the danger of spiritual nourishment. The, patch, the passage is structured with two main chunks, all right? Chunks of good food, right? Um, and then there's a bit in the middle. The first chunk is about Jesus being our high priest. This is really meaty, solid food to chew on. And there's a, very, there's a second chunk, which is a very strong warning against falling away. So Jesus is our high priest, don't fall away. How are they connected? Um, they're connected with a bit in the middle, which tells us to get off spiritual milk and get onto solids. In other words, putting it together, the way we stop ourselves falling away is to make sure that we are well-fed spiritually and nourished by chewing over the very sort of nutritious food 
in that first morsel about thinking about Jesus and what ministry he has to us. Chew that over, right, and it nourishes you. Believe it, and it'll stop you from falling. Got it? So now it's time to get nourished. You ready? Okay. The first chunk is about Jesus, and he is a high priest who gets you. That's me summarizing it. He understands you. He knows what it is like for you to really be you. It says, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, let us do two things. Let us hold on and move forward. So let us hold on firmly to the faith we profess, hold on, and let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, move forward. It's, it's saying not falling on your faith, not falling down is like riding a bike, okay? If you ride a bike, how do you not fall over? Well, the answer is you hold on and you move forward. That's how you stay up. You stop, if you stop holding on, you'll fall. And if you stop moving forward, you'll fall. But if you hold on and move forward, guess what? You stay up. Same in our faith. To stay up without falling, here's what you've got to do. First of all, you hold on. In this case, hold on firmly to the faith we profess, meeting the content of what we believe, the sort of stuff we said in the Apostles' Creed just now, that Christ Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He will return to judge, etc. We hold on to the faith we profess it, saying, you believe it and you keep believing it. That's what it's saying. Hold on to it. But also move forward. Keep approaching God's throne of grace with confidence. Keep, in your, in your Christian life, keep coming to God in prayer with you as you. Approach, keep approaching God with confidence. That's how you avoid falling. But to do that, of course, you have to digest a key truth about Jesus. Because many of us, I think, you know, we think, well, you know, God's distant and he's up there and does he really pay attention to me? And, and if, even if he does, does he really get what it's like for me to be me? Um, no, actually, I'll talk to someone else. I'll talk to a friend. Maybe I'll talk to a saint, I'll talk to Mary, I'll talk to someone who I think is closer and gets it better. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses. Now, there's a double negative there. <laughs> not being unable to empathise with our weaknesses means that Jesus can empathise with our weakness. That is, it's saying he gets you. He understands you. He knows what it's like for you to be you. Because he himself has been tempted in every way, just as we have been. And when it says that he was tempted in every way, that means every way. He knows what it is to be tired and strung out and what a snap he knows what it's like to be in pain. He knows what it's like to be hungry and not have enough. He knows what it's like to be lonely and to feel isolated and like no one understands. He knows what it's like to be stretched beyond your reserves. He knows what it's like to give and give and give and give to constant needy hands beckoning in his direction, mums, you understand, right? And 
and then to be almost fed up. He knows what it's like to bear the weight of expectation of never-ending needs and demands. He knows what it's like to feel like you want to explode. He knows what it's like to be depressed. We're told in Isaiah he was a man of sorrows. He was familiar with suffering. He knows what it's like to be lonely. Um, you read Psalm 22 um, on anxiety that quotes Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross and the psalmist, you see, knows what it's like to be anxious and fearful. And the fact that Jesus quoted on the cross tells us that he was anxious and fearful. He knows what it's like to live with anxiety. You think of his temptation in the wilderness, we realize that he even knows what it's like to hear evil voices in your head. And he did, and they were real. I'd like to suggest that he even knows what it's like to be disabled. Not that he was ever physically lame or blind himself, but we're told in Matthew 8, when he healed, a transaction would take place at a deep level, an exchange took place of his wellness for our weakness and our infirmities, which he then took upon himself to carry. At a deep level, he knows what it's like for someone to be disabled. He gets us. He knows what it's like for God to seem distant and silent. He gets the struggle of you keeping your thought world pure. He gets the struggle of responding selflessly instead of selfishly. He gets our struggle with sin when giving in seems so much easier than resisting. He gets it. He's been there. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way that we are. And for temptations really to be temptations and not just hypotheticals, he would have had to want what he was being tempted with. And because he did want those things and yet he held out, he didn't sin, of course this means that he knows more than any of us how hard it can be. Because at whatever point we give in, he didn't, which means he gets us. He really gets you and me. In fact, that word empathize literally means suffers with, meaning it's not just that he understands in his head what it's like for you to be you. He suffers with you. When you go through a hard time, he feels it. He suffers with you. When you grieve, he grieves with you. When you cry, he cries with you. So the point is that he gets you better than any human high priest. That's why it's blasphemous to think that you could go to God through someone else, that they'd understand you more than he would. No, not at all. At the start of chapter five, we read that other high priests because they themselves are sinners, are able to deal, deal gently with those who go astray since they themselves are subject to weakness. And we read that and we can think that this means that they will understand us better than Jesus did because they sinned, whereas he didn't. It's not true that they understand us better. That word deal gently is probably too polite as a translation. It's better translated as not get angry. They're able just to not get angry with you. Other high priests, in other words, put up with us because they're human as well. 
But Jesus, fully human, tempted in every way, yet without sin, he gets us more than any other human high priest could because at whatever point we've given in, he's held out, which means he understands the cost of human suffering more than anyone. That makes him the perfect middleman, priest between us and God. You see? Chew on that. It'll change your prayer life. It will. Because you'll think he gets me. I'll come to God now. (laughs) And also from the God side of things, he's our priest because God appointed him that. No one could become a high priest just because they wanted to. No Israelite teen could look through the careers guide and say, high priest, you know, that looks pretty good. You get to dress up, you know, a bit of status. You can't just apply if you wanted to. No one takes on that glory themselves. They have to be appointed by God. In the same way, chapter five, verse five, Christ didn't take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. God appointed him. My very son, he says, and you're a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Don't flip out at that, okay? That just means a different high priest to other priests. We'll cover Melchizedek next week in the all-in family service. A whole family service on Melchizedek, yeah, it doesn't get better than that, right? That'll be a rollicking good time. All right, (laughs) God appointed Christ Jesus as our high priest to be a different priest, unique, one who really does meet our needs in every way because verses seven to 10 of chapter five, his sufferings make him the perfect savior. Let me read this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. That raises a question, doesn't it? (laughs) Does that mean he was, no, it doesn't mean he was disobedient before, keep going. He learned obedience from what he was suffered and once made perfect, he became, that raises a question, doesn't it? Was he not perfect? Anyway, he became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. It's very easy to hear that and think, it seems to be saying that Jesus at one time wasn't sinless, but somehow through his sufferings, Jesus became sinless and our perfect saviour, except That's not right, is it? Because we know that Jesus never sinned. It's already said that in the passage. Chapter four, verse 15, he did not sin. It says it, black and white, right? The tricky phrase is once made perfect in verse nine. What does that mean? We read that word perfect and we think it means sinless, but it doesn't mean that. It means final end point or completion, okay? I want you to think of a car on a production line. Okay, a car in bits moving along the production line. Um, It's not in its perfect state when it's moving along until it rolls off the end and it's finished. You wouldn't call the car on the production line while it's still being produced sinful, would you? That was, I mean, it's just the wrong category. You wouldn't call it that um, because it hadn't reached its final, finished, perfected state. So too with Jesus. To be our perfected saviour, he had to go through what we went through and yet remain sinless. I, I think it's like this. Each of us as sinners, we each have different thresholds of resisting temptation and then falling. 
different breaking points, if you like. Some of us are stronger than others, some of us are weaker than others, but we all have our breaking points. Jesus, in being tempted in every way that we are, never gave in, and so he went beyond every person's breaking point. Meaning that because of what he went through and was sinless, that means that he alone can represent all of us, each of us, when he dies in our place for sinners at the cross. You understand. He had to go through that to become our perfected saviour. This is why Good Friday could not happen the day after Christmas Day. Good Friday couldn't have happened on Boxing Day. I mean, the idea of a sinless infant being butchered is just horrendous. But he couldn't have substituted in for us then because to represent us at the cross, he first needed to go through what we've gone through without sinning. Even up to the point in the Garden of Gethsemane, which chapter 5 verse 7 refers to, loud words in prayers, praying with tears and cries, begging his father, the one who could save him from death, for him not to have to go through with the cross and yet adding the words, yet not, not my will but yours be done. So Christ's sufferings in holding out against temptation perfected him as our saviour and made him the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. It's saying Jesus is the high priest who gets you. He knows you. He suffered for you as your saviour and now as high priest in heaven for you, he suffers with you. Believe that and you'll come to God through him. If you doubt it, you won't ask God for help because you'll think he doesn't understand. You see how chewing over that bit of solid food nourishes your soul? Okay. Next point, you really do need solid nourishment. Paraphrasing the middle bit, right? We're in the middle bit from chapter 5, verse 11. It says, look, there's a lot of other solid bits of food to feed you with, but you've become lazy. You no longer try to understand even though by now you should be teachers, you're not ready, you're content to suck on spiritual milk, but you're not moving onto solids. The result is you're immature, you're spiritual infants, and it comes out in you not knowing how to live by distinguishing good from evil. You just can't do it. You haven't fed long enough on the word of God. He's saying we need to move beyond simple teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, and God permitting, we will. And then comes the reason why. So that's the middle bit, and then the reason why. Here's the warning about falling away. Okay. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. That warning is serious. If you fall away, it's impossible to come back. Now, many Christians, you read this and you struggle. Is it possible for Christians to fall away? Can we fall away? Well, no, not in the end. But let's not be smug about this. The Bible is more nuanced. We're told, imagine your life is a field. If you drink in the rain, and you produce a crop that's useful to others, you'll receive blessing from God. But if you're worthless as a piece of land, you produce only thorns and thistles, 
You're in danger of being cursed, and in the end, you'll be burned. Interesting, isn't it, that the writer here turns to an agricultural analogy. You remember the parable of the sower that Jesus himself taught. Remember that? Four types of soil. It was only the good soil that produced the fruitful crop when seed was sown on it. Others, of course, well, the second and third, had signs of life. Seedlings springing up from shallow soil. Um, Even further from the rocky soil, look at the soil, there were signs of life, what we might call in someone's life the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Early signs of faith that the Holy Spirit will bring out in someone before they come to saving faith. Now here these early signs of life are spelt out as tasting the heavenly gift, sharing to some degree in the Holy Spirit and the early signs of awakening and, and the joy of even some repentance, tasting the goodness of the word of God when Jesus, in Jesus' language in the parable of the soul, receiving the word with joy. And then also the powers of the coming age, true in their life, signs of regeneration, a changed life. They're like the early shoots of greenery that come out on a new seedling. But of course, we know that you can have those and fall away. Parable of the sower, when trouble or persecution comes or when the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke life out of us. All of us know people who've started in the faith and given up. In that sense, it's a little bit academic to just ask this question, can Christians fall away? It can... Um, keep us from listening to this. The point here is don't. Don't fall away. It's not starting the race, it's finishing that counts. Each of us can start, we can each have the early signs of life, but it's also possible that we could wither and die because we haven't let ourselves be nourished well. You might say, but hang on, I thought there was, you know, if you're once saved, you're always saved. Now look, there is a truth to that little phrase that I don't want to water down. John says in 1 John chapter 5 verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know this. Assurance is something every believer can have. But there is also, this is is also a deep truth I want to say. Um, John says that In chapter five, at the end of his letter, after five chapters of very solid food that we've chewed over and digested, those are the things that he writes so that we may know that we have eternal life. He doesn't just say, he doesn't have a one verse epistle and just say, guess what, once saved, always saved. Close the book. You know, we can trot out that little phrase in a way which does water down assurance. We can kind of justify our spiritual laziness by it. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. What's the point in knowing more? We live on spiritual milk. You don't open your Bibles. Pretty soon you lose your convictions about the core truths that really do matter. You let go of the hard, edgy bits like teaching about the judgment to come, God rightly being angry at sin, the need for repentance. Soon enough we find ourselves drifting into a kind of Christianized, wishy-washy universalism with core truths of Jesus, without the core truths of Jesus um, present. You know, he's not Lord, 
He's just nice. Uh, we believe in grace without any cost, salvation without any need for repentance. How do you get over that? You keep reading the Bible. It keeps you honest. Let me put this together. Speaking pers personally for myself, do I know that I'm saved? Yes. Of course, not because of me, but because of Jesus. But it's also true in my own life that the deeper I understand Jesus, the deeper I think on him, the more solid my assurance grows. Because there are times when I'm flaky. What's the answer? I dwell more on Jesus. I nourish myself. Could I fall away? Or humanly speaking, I could. If I take my eyes off him, I'll let go of my faith, I give in to sin, yeah, I could walk away, so could you. If God would let you. But he won't. That's why he gives me this warning, right? That's him not letting me. Humanly speaking, how do I go on to maturity without falling? Well, it's like riding a bike, isn't it? I hold on to the faith I profess and I move forward. I approach God's throne of grace with confidence. I'm far less likely to do that if I've just been filling up with spiritual milk. If I just think once saved, always saved, if that's a reason to be lazy, I'm not going to come to God in prayer. But if I've chewed over the solid food of, for example, Jesus being my high priest who really gets me, who suffers with me and gives me good reason to come to him in prayer, well then guess what, I'm gonna move forward. I am going to approach the throne of grace with confidence and I am going to hold on to the faith I confess. You see. And so that's why he finishes saying, verse nine, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. He says, God isn't unjust. He won't forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. He says, we want you to show each of you this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We don't want you to become lazy. We want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what's been promised. So it's saying, come to God. Come to God through Jesus. He gets you. He really does. Whatever you're going through right now, he is there as your high priest so that from God you can receive mercy and grace in whatever way you need it at the moment. Come to God. Come to God through Jesus and nourish your soul. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus, our high priest who understands and who suffers with us. Father, forgive us for taking our eyes off him when we have and which has led to prayerlessness and led to shallow thinking. Father, thank you that when we nourish ourselves on Jesus, we are nourished deeply. God, please help us to feed on him and make it a habit to feed on him deeply. Amen.